This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Returning to Eden, a field guide for the spiritual journey. Returning to Eden is a book by Heather Hamilton for people who resonate with aspects of Christianity but struggle with the coherence of its claims. After having a mystical experience that shattered her evangelical beliefs, Heather Hamilton found herself on the journey that every true spiritual seeker ultimately takes. The highest truths that set us free are hidden in places that most people are not looking. Returning to Eden re-examines the Bible stories of childhood and opens them up as symbolic maps into the inner world. Stories like Jonah and the Whale, the parting of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, and the Virgin Birth are illuminated with penetrating depth and intellectual integrity. Faith is no longer a white-knuckled grip on implausible beliefs, but a relaxation into a deep inner knowing. You can purchase Returning to Eden by Heather Hamilton at Amazon.com or at ReturningToEden.com. Hello, friends. How was your holiday? Did you survive? Are you okay? Even if you're not, it's all right. I'm here. We're here. There are a lot of people who dread holiday gatherings with family for a lot of reasons. You are seen. I hope it was okay. And now I have kind of the follow-up to our last podcast episode. So I said this on our last episode with um, responding to Mark Driscoll with Kevin Carnahan. I talked to Russell Johnson. Him and I had a discussion. I met Russell at the Turning Point USA Pastor Summit. I tell the story in the interview, but just to make it quick, short and sweet, he ended up blocking me a long time ago on social media, found me at the Pastor Summit. We started talking. When it came to our personalities, we kind of hit it off and we started talking more. Then we ended up getting lunch. Then we ended up hanging out the duration of the time and talking about all kinds of things. It was really weird. Okay, it really blew my categories because I'm talking to a guy who's at this event because he supports most of it, but then we're having dinner and I'm like, wait, you're way more nuanced than I would have thought. We actually have some agreement in ways that I'm not sure what to do with. Also, though, you're speaking at this event. Like, dude, help me understand. Also, you're a pastor. So him and I became, dare I say, friendly, which I know might make some of us uncomfortable. Hey, it makes me uncomfortable, okay? I'm still navigating how to have, dare we say, relationships relationships with folks that I really disagree with and also who I think are pushing very harmful narratives, but trying to maintain some kind of relationship to have the conversation, to have an open door, to speak and to say, listen, friend, what you're doing is harming these people. And I think for me, as I've been navigating the work of TNE and what we do and this both and approach of advocating for accountability, holding space for folks marginalized, um, and also being willing to engage people who I think are really part of the problem, I am walking a tightrope here. I totally get that. And there's a reason why I don't do a ton of these kinds of conversations on the podcast. I want to be aware of who we're quote unquote platforming and I want to make sure that we're careful about that. At the same time, right, we live on the planet with these people. They exist. They are made in the image of God. They are in our neighborhoods. They are in our churches. They are in the this, this systems and cultures that we breathe. And I, I just don't think that screaming at people on the relational level is always the way to change minds. Now, that's different than the policies we advocate for, how we think about things systemically, how we try and fight for um, policies and laws that, that fight for or that advocate for a more equitable society. 
I'm with you, of course, there. And that's part of the work that we do is trying to bring people in who are doing that work, right? And giving people that better way forward. Also, though, when it comes to the one-on-one, I my mind was changed by people who held space for me and asked me questions that planted seeds. And while I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm ever gonna change someone, change someone like Russell's mind, I hope that he understands that there's a way to love your neighbor And I hope that he feels challenged by some of the rhetoric that he either sits under or that he espouses himself. And because him and I have a relationship of some sort and he knows that I'm a good faith actor, I'm not here to get him into a corner and embarrass him on the internet. We were able to have a really serious dialogue and I was able to really push back on some stuff because we have some of that relational equity. Again, I don't know how I always feel about this. I imagine there are some of you who are maybe kind of like, oh, I don't know, Tim, this makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm with you, okay? I'm totally with you. I get that. I'm just trying to do my best. I'm trying to do my part to push things forward. And sometimes that means talking to folks who have very different perspectives, some of which are very, I would say, harmful. And Russell knows that. This is not a secret to Russell. And say, dude, help me understand how you believe in the Sermon on the Mount, but then say things like this. So this is a conversation between me and Russell that was open, that was honest. Um, Russell, when he gets passionate, it sounds like he's yelling. That's just how he talks. I do that too. When I get passionate, I get loud. So, you know, just take that with a grain of salt. There's no reason to dehumanize uh, Russell or make fun of how he talks when he gets passionate. We all have our own tone of voice. He's not angry at me. It's just how he talks. Also, if you want to see people's reaction in real time, you can watch this whole conversation on our YouTube and you can see what people were thinking, some of the comments, etc. And honestly, I would love your thoughts on this. I really try to have these conversations every now and then. We've talked to a lot of people on the podcast. I talked to Samuel Duth, a pastor from from Awakened Church. He's like way back in the episodes. I've had Michael from Honest Youth Pastor on the podcast. I've had folks who disagree with me strongly on the podcast. Again, they're not the most common type of guest, but I do think that it's necessary to always be the organization and the person who's saying, if you're willing to engage me in good faith, yes, I will talk to you. I have serious concerns. Let's talk about them. So this is my best way of doing that. I would love your feedback, friends, of course. And I hope that this is a helpful conversation on your way back from wherever you were over the holiday weekend. I hope that it's helpful and that it, it um, helps you see that maybe there are better paths forward in our faith. One other thing I want to say about this. I know this is a long intro. Hang in there with me. Sometimes I feel like if we only stay within our own safety, I don't know, uh, our own corners, we can say, um, it's kind of like a sports team that only practices with themselves. And then when they create all these plays and strategies, they play an actual opponent and they don't know how those plays are going to do until they play the opponent, right? Um, I I play chess extremely casually. If, if my brother's listening to this, he's laughing at me. I play it so not that often, but I enjoy watching chess strategy videos, etc. I'll watch those and think, okay, I got it. Then I go play my brother and he demolishes me, right? And I, one thing I'm afraid of sometimes is that if we're only inside of our own quote unquote echo chambers, we don't know how effective our arguments actually are until they're up against someone else who is completely outside of the team that we're doing the work with. So I do these as well for personal reasons, just to see, okay, how does my logic hold up? How do my questions hold up? Are these are these sound ways of viewing these topics? Am I straw manning this person's position? So that's an important part of why we do these conversations too. I want you to hear how beliefs that we would have and perspectives we would have hold up against other people who would say, 
No, I don't like that. But I will say Russell and I do have some surprising areas of agreement, which for me is enough of a of an open door to try and push and say, okay, Russell, if we agree here, why can't we agree here? Anyway, long intro. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, friends, Giving Tuesday is coming up. I'm so excited to talk about Project Amplify and what we're doing with that. I Man, this is a huge evolution for us when it comes to our content and working with credible voices and kind of building out a more strategic structure to hopefully be part part of the digital media landscape that is offering better ways forward in the Christian culture and the Christian civic engagement conversation, etc. I'm pumped to share it with you. If you want to support our work, of course, you can share the podcast. You can donate. We are a nonprofit. All donations are tax deductible. This intro is really, really long. I'm sorry. Had to get this all off my chest. Have a great rest of your weekend. I will talk to you all soon. Enjoy. Hey there, I am Susan and I live in Southern Illinois. I have been a TNE donor two different times now. One of the things that's most important to me is that Tim and the board are fully committed to transparency and honesty. They don't want donors to feel as if though we are being coerced, as often happens within church environments. I am grateful for Tim and all that he has accomplished. I look forward to the future and believe that fundraising is a necessary aspect for growth to allow TNE to provide these resources where they are needed most. Hello, friends. Who's ready for a bloodbath? Just kidding. Hi. Good to be with you. Welcome. Another live. It's been a while. Um, I've been working on this conversation for a little bit. So a few quick caveats. First, if you're new or if you're on team, my guest today, my name is Tim. I'm the creator and facilitator of the New Evangelicals. We are an inclusive, Jesus-centered community, holding space for folks marginalized by the evangelical church, advocating for accountability in evangelical spaces, and helping people explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. It's good to be here with you. Thank you for making time out of your day to be here. A couple of quick things, just so you know, as an organization and as a human, we are committed to non-dehumanization. What does this mean? It means that even though we have strong opinions and that we disagree strongly with in this case, our guest today, we're not here to make fun or to belittle people. We believe that all people are made in the Imago Dei, and it's important that we respect that. So today's conversation is just that. It's a conversation. It's an honest one. We're definitely going to talk about our disagreements. We're going to talk about what we agree on and also our unlikely story, how we actually met, which is I'll let me and my guest explain this. So on this live or on the podcast, if you're listening, I'm bringing on Russell Johnson, uh, he is a pastor of Pursuit Northwest, hopefully I'm right about that, in Washington. He is a lead pastor, and we met at a pastor summit hosted by Turning Point Faith. We'll get into that. So without further ado, let's see. Yeah, Russell. Hi. <laughs> hey, what's up? Whoa, you just keep... Is it your birthday? That was weird. I don't know. Who gave you balloons? <laughs> hey, it's good to see you again. Um, thanks for making time and being on, on this live stream and on the podcast. It means a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for setting it up. I think it'd be a fun fun thing for both our audiences. I think so. I, I want to preface, uh, pref, 
preface preface with a few quick caveats on our end. I know for our audience, um, you know, we have conversations with all kinds of people. I know you and I are going to disagree strongly. I think that's really important that we have these conversations. And also, it should be known that you and I talk semi-often behind the scenes. And a lot of the reason we're able to ask each other the hard questions is because we built up a rapport with each other that we know we're not trying to exploit the other person or like, you know, make this into a clickbait conversation. These are real questions that I've asked you before and vice versa. And we're going to have these conversations publicly. So um, I think that's important. Why don't you kind of introduce yourself? I'm kind of curious, how did you even become a lead pastor of a church in in Washington State? Give me the background. Yeah, so I was born and raised in the Seattle region and then um, spent uh, most of my uh, late teens and early 20s working in the political field and did a bunch of work uh, statewide, uh, local, even some federal races, and really thought that that was probably what I was gonna do for the rest of my life. Uh, Spent some time in DC, I was a lobbyist, I worked in the nonprofit political space, I worked in just the straight political space, I mean, just doing all sorts of stuff. And then Mm. uh, in, in particular, we were working on a big Senate race in, the supposed uh, red wave of 2010. And that red wave did not make it to Washington state, which meant that the person that I was working for ended up not winning. And that led to really a course correction change in my life where I ended up as a young adult pastor at Assemblies of God Church and uh, did that for a number of years and then transitioned out to Plants Pursuit nine years ago. Um, you got a few friends here. Your buddy Jake says, let's go, Russ. We got Lonnie hey. in the chat. Let's go, P. Russ. Uh, Ari says, so you got you got some fans, which is great. Let's so are, is it safe to say that you come from more of the charismatic Pentecostal background, more than like the cessationist background? Yeah, for sure. You know, we was born and raised uh, Pentecostal. And so, you know, the best way that I could describe that, you know, to people who are maybe not familiar with this kind of tradition of Protestantism is that, you know, imagine if you drank 17 Red Bulls prior to going to church in the morning. That is what pursuit is like five times Sunday morning, one time Sunday night. So, mm-hmm. hey, we're excited. We're loud. Uh, we believe in the work, the role, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so, yeah, we're part of that kind of charismatic Pentecostal tradition. People say, does this mean you guys speak in tongues? Yes, it means we speak in tongues. You know, we believe in all of that type of stuff. Yeah. And how do you how how do you view the Bible? And I ask that because. You know, some people might use the word uh, inerrant to describe how they view the Bible. I've heard people say, no, I take it all literally. Some say it's more complicated. For you as a pastor and for the church, like the Bible, the Protestant Bible, right, that we have, how do you view it? How do you, how does it play? Uh, what's the role it plays in like your eschatology and like your, you know, your view of, of, of God, et cetera, uh, for you and for the church? Yeah, you know, for me, what I think of scripture, I think of it in, uh, I think of it with kind of three taxonomical classifications. Number one, it's inerrant. Number two, it's authoritative. And number three, it's inspired. Mm. And so when we say inerrant, you know, our theology, yeah. we would believe that it's 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 perfect. It's without error. It's without fault. It communicates exactly what God would desire for us to be on the receiving end of. Uh, number two, it's authoritative, which means it actually has the ability to course correct my life. It's not just like a religious document. It's not just like a blog somebody writes. It's not just like a Zondervan published book. It's uh, Although they do the publish authority. the Bible, to be fair. <laughs> they do. They do. 
I heard that that's you. actually, I heard it's actually your book project you're working on is your interpretation. <laughs> yes. The new evangelical version <laughs> with pictures. But, yeah, with uh, pictures. Okay. Uh, but yeah, you know, authoritative uh, and then inspired in the sense that it's God breathed. And so for me, you know, I don't know, we'll get into this as the conversation kind of evolves. But, you know, for me, um, that uh, when we think about the Word of God as being a paramount, authoritative, inspired, inerrant text, that is the framing for how we believe what we believe. And so it, it, it is the epistemo- epistemological framework, you know, mm-hmm. of the, you know, by and large, the evangelical community. Uh, obviously, sure. there are other folks who are going to have different ways that they understand the text. But, you know, yeah. I think I can make the claim that it is by and large the orthodox view of the church for about the last 1,650 years that scripture out of a lot of things is at least three, inerrant, authoritative, and inspired. All right, we're going to dive into that in a few minutes. But first, I want to kind of get into how you and I um, met because it's very interesting, right? So my first my first ever interaction with, with, with your church was when you guys did a video about the COVID shutdowns a couple of years ago that kind of went viral like in our circles, right? And I saw the video and then you know there was some, I'm gonna just say culture war language in there about the trans community. I was like, oh, this isn't my thing at all. I'm kind of concerned about it. I'm not really digging like this vibe. It just seems kind of angry. And then people would send me clips from your sermons here or there. And I was like, yeah, I don't really know how I feel about this at all. And then you did a clip where you said that deconstruction is the doctrine of demons. And I did a res- I did a response uh, on I think maybe on YouTube or something, and then I got blocked by the church. I got blocked by you by the church. So I'm like, well, here we go, another another one bites the dust. You know, I'm blocked. And then I just kind of honestly I forgot about you guys. Like I, I was like, well, okay, they're part of this space. I, I labeled you as this Christian nationalist adjacent kind of world, and I put you in that category. And then here I am. You know, part of the work that I do is I uh, will go to Christian nationalist events. I follow the work of Turning Point very closely because they're really making a lot of grant, uh, a lot of waves and a lot of like um, relationships in the evangelical, mainly the white evangelical space. So I go to this event in, in Nashville, Tennessee. It's like, well, 1,100 pastors. I'm just doing my thing. And you tap me on the shoulder. You're like, yo. And I'm like, holy shit. I'm like, uh, what's up, dude? And don't ask me how, but you and I ended up like hanging out for the remainder of that weekend. We tagged along with each other and we had a lot of conversations that honestly, um, I was really confused by. And I told you this over dinner. So the, friends, if you don't know me, I've told Russell this. This is not a surprise to him. This is not clickbait. I was like, dude, the person that you are on this platform saying these things and the person I'm talking to, I'm having a hard time reconciling, you know, because we had a lot of, dare I even say, nuanced conversations around political views and around like the upcoming election. And you said things I'm like, whoa, this kind of breaks my own category. But I'm curious for you, what was your first impression of meeting me? And when did you spot me at that event? I got to know. Well, you're a lot taller in person than you are on Instagram. And so uh, you're kind of hard to miss. But, uh, you know, for me, I think like, you know, I come from the political space where we disagree with people for a living, for fun. We just, we just find things to disagree about because that's what you do in the political space. And so, uh, you know, for me, being able to engage in rigorous dialogue, even with people who 
maybe on some points are diametrically opposed to your philosophy, your ontology, your perspective. Uh, you know, it's uh, it, that, that, that doesn't really come across as contentious to me. And so, you know, obviously, I know that you're one of the leading voices in, you know, whatever you would want to call it, the deconstruction movement or whatever it is, uh, which, you know, I find myself in many ways on the polar opposite of. But at the same time, regardless of what people want to say about you, what they can't deny is that for whatever you believe, you deeply believe it. This isn't a grift. This isn't like a Tim's get rich quick scheme. Let's start a nonprofit <laughs> and fly on private jets around the world. Like, yep. you know, you, you have a deep conviction about those things, which you believe. And uh, for me, you know, it's fun and it's, it's, it's intellectually engaging to have those conversations and go, hey, help, help me understand your perspective here. Help me understand why you would see these things to be true and, and kind of chop it up. So when I saw you at Turning Point, I was like, look, here's the reality. At some point, this dude is going to see me because I'm going to be on stage speaking. So let me just kind of break the ice and be like, yo, what's up? And just see if he's cool. And then you were like, hey. I remember you. Did, did we? Did we like kind of have a little tussle on social media? And, and, and I was like, "Yeah, all right. What are you doing for lunch?" And I think we got chicken wings or something, you know. And yeah, then that's yeah. when it started. Of like, "Yo, let's have some conversation." Because the reality is, and, I, and you know this, just because you and I have had these conversations. You know, on Sundays I preach six times back to back to back, and our first five services, because of how many people are coming in, run sixty minutes in length. That's from the very first song to the very last amen of my service. And because of the truncated time that we have, I'm not always able to flesh out these types of conversations in an apologetic type fashion where we have an hour, hour and a half to go back and forth. And so I think speaking to your impression of going, yo, I see kind of this Instagram version of Russell and it's like these kind of 60 second hot takes. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, by and large, that is the social media space is that it's these, you know, fragments or facets of who we are, but it's not the totality of kind of the, you know, dialectical understanding of who a person is. And so that's why I was excited to be able to do this with you because the reality is, both you and I are more than our 60 second sound bites. Not that those aren't a reflection of things that we believe or values that we hold true. But when you sit down and have that interchange, whether or not you agree with me or not, at least you walk away from the conversation and you think about me what I think about you, which is, yo, I think he actually deeply believes this stuff, even if I think he's deeply wrong. And mm -hmm. there is something about that that's respectable. Mm hmm. Yeah. Uh, first off, I want to point out that um, the Alden says I have a very swanky private jet, and that's true. So thank you, donors, for the jet. It really helps as I'm doing this out of my guest bedroom. So I definitely am living the high life for sure. This grift has worked out so successfully for me. It's crazy. Um, no, you still that, fly Spirit. Joke, you, know? you, you fly Spirit Airlines. It's I'm not going, a grift. <laughs> I'm going to Georgia in two weeks, and you bet your ass I book Spirit <laughs> Airlines, baby. I was like, I, I can pack everything in one backpack, no problem. So You're let's, out of control. So. so by the way, Russell, you know this, but just so the audience knows, you can ask me any question as well. Anything you want to ask me is fair game. But yeah. my, my first question for you is, I mean, do you really think that like, do you think that deconstruction is the doctrine of demons? And here's my point with that. I understand the social media game a lot, right? I get the short clip format, but sometimes I see people say things that are just completely outlandish and then they tend to hide behind, well, it's social media. And I'm like, okay, so let's get rid of that. Do you actually believe that deconstruction is the doctrine of demons? I mean, 
I, that, that's what I'm trying to wrestle with here is like, was that just hyperbole to get clicks or do you actually believe that as a human? Because anything I say online, I try to make sure if someone brought it to my attention, I could say, yes, I was not exaggerating when I made this claim or it was blatantly exaggerated on purpose to make the claim. So for you, I'm someone who deconstructed. Am I participating in the doctrine of demons? Like break that down for me. Yeah, I mean, you're the prince of the demons, <laughs> just yourself. No, no, I, I think this is important to note, too, is that, you know, uh, when I am talking about ideologies, principalities, powers, arguments, philosophies, I, I try to do it in the best way I can to separate it from, you know, being a personal attack or a statement about somebody's character. Uh, and so, you know, for me, when, when, uh, when I look at deconstruction, uh, I, I view the, the deconstruction movement in and of itself. And again, there's not like a deconstruction political party with like an established constitution. So not yet. This I'm working real, on it. Not, not yet. That's your next project. But so part of what we're talking about is, I think, a colloquial understanding of what deconstruction has come to be known as in 2023, understanding that this is a philosophical movement from the 70s by a French dude named Derrida, you know, but understanding in our world today, it's taken on kind of a different understanding, you know, but for me, uh, when I when I think about wrestle with, contemplate, uh, make arguments against the, 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 the philosophical movement of deconstruction, yeah, I mean, I view this as a the prime as as probably the primary um, uh, 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 a primary tactic of deceit, uh, deception, and uh, and uh, kind of what I would call demonic ideology in the sense of uh, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about pulling down every argument that would that would. Uh, that would in some ways propose itself against Christ, our battle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. Yeah, I view deconstruction as as a philosophical Trojan horse that has done violence against my generation in such a way that it has moved people away from historic Orthodox Christianity to such an extent that they have found themselves, like Paul would say, shipwrecking the faith. And so I don't believe that people who uh, adopt deconstruction are demonic or they're demons or anything like that. But when I look at this, I'm like... I, this is deception. I mean, I think that this movement is a movement of deception that causes people to become unanchored from 2000 years of church history in favor of repackaged Gnosticism from a French dude in the late seventies. And so when I, when I think of that, I go, yeah, to me, it's like a red flag warning, like, yo, we got to sound the alarm on this. This is not actually a healthy direction for the church. What are, I mean, for you, because you mentioned, you know, I hear this a lot, right? The historic orthodox, we're, we're, we're drifting away from historic orthodoxy, et cetera. What are we actually referring to here? I mean, are, are, are we going to get into the culture war issues of like abortion, homosexuality, or are we going to be talking about like the physical resurrection? Because I have found that oftentimes that label has a whole different set of beliefs underneath of it that I would argue like, what are we talking about when it comes to orthodoxy? So, so give me some more of these details because I'm trying to understand what you're talking about because I'm someone who's deeply embedded in this I call it an explosion. And while certainly some people explode and go in one direction different than me, maybe they, they deconvert or they find a different religious house to live in, or they maybe think, hey, there is no God, I'm not convinced that anymore. There are plenty of people who quote unquote deconstruct to find a better way forward in their Christian tradition because fundamentalism and views like maybe inerrancy, or at least how they were taught it, were like untenable for them. Is that the demonic part? Or is it like, no, if you become an atheist, that's the deception. Like, what are we actually talking about here? 
Well, sure. And I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, Colbert makes this point, uh, pastor out of Portland, and he's certainly no progressive. But oh, John, he, uh, Mark, John Comer? Yeah. Or John Mark Comer, he, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, he, and he makes the comment that oftentimes uh, uh, progressive Christianity or, or deconstructed Christianity is just a, a holdover to post-Christianity. He says in his perspective that a vast majority of the time that that's exactly where this leads. Now, that's one perspective is what it is. Sure. Uh, but I think I think you are right in bringing this up. You know, if you and I maybe disagree over the um, political nature of gay marriage, does that mean that you have, quote unquote, deconstructed and you're no longer orthodox? No, I, I don't think that's the case, uh, because when everything becomes orthodox, nothing is orthodox. And so when everything is a zero sum issue, unless you believe exactly what I believe and you better believe exactly what I believe about speaking in tongues and women in ministry and signs, wonders and miracles. And if you don't believe that you're not orthodox, no, that that's that that is the fundamentalist game that I think is is not helpful. Uh, but when I, when I think about historic orthodoxy, I'm thinking about things like the Apostles Creed the Nicene Creed. I'm, I'm thinking about what the church fathers have held fast to and what has been inseparable from the Christian experience for time immemorial. And one of the concerns I think that I have in our world today, and, and this is part of the deconstruction movement, which of course started as a literary critique and then turned into like this philosophical framework, is that, you know, we kind of have the ultimate authority to remake Christianity into whatever image we so desire. And so like, if I'm like a universalist, but I like to feed like homeless people on the street, it's like, I'm part of the Christian experience. Well, that that is not historic Christian orthodox. When I think about the historic Orthodox truth, I think about the sinless life of Christ, his vicarious death, his literal resurrection from the grave three days later, his ascension into heaven, his resurrection, uh, the fact that he is the only true uh, son of God, uh, that we worship one God who's made manifest in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, you, you know, when I think about the historic Orthodoxy, I'm not like... Are you post-trib or pre-trib? Are you Trump or Biden? Are you pro-gay marriage or anti-gay marriage? I'm going, th these are important issues, but they are secondary issues. When I'm talking about historic orthodoxy, I'm going, do we still affirm that Jesus is who he says he is? And he is, in fact, what scripture declares him to be. And if we can get agreement on that, then the other things, it's not that they're not important, but to me, those are not what I would refer to as like uh, demonic principalities and powers. I'm like, well, these are disagreements and let's chop it up and, and let's have that conversation and, and see where you land. But what I found mostly in the deconstruction movement is not people who affirm the deity of Christ. They do not affirm the, the reality of his sinless life, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his uh, ascension into heaven, his return. These are not things that they affirm. They are warmed over universalists who, who, who culturally appropriate uh, 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 pseudo-religious values from Hinduism and Buddhism, and they're, they're nothing more than amalgamated universalists who but like who to are, throw I Jesus mean, into the conversation. Okay, first off, universalism is 
is part of the Christian tradition, like way before any of us have been around. So let's just start with that. I mean, if, if that's the standard is like being a universalist means you're deconstructing, like, well, I got people to talk to you about who are some of the church fathers, but I digress. Well, my question is, I, I, I think though, hold on. What you're saying though, is what you're referring to is universal reconciliation. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. This idea that the grace and the love of God is so great and so grand that yes. in the final esteem of things, I guess when I'm using the word universalism, what I'm using is this idea of, all paths lead to God. Jesus is one of many gods, this kind of pantheistic new age. We're just kind of living in this spiritual vacuum where all religious experiences are equally valid. Not so much the idea of could God in his grace reconcile all of humanity at the end of the age? Now, I don't agree with that, but I would say, yes, that has that idea has been present in some Christian traditions. Yeah, for sure. But, Okay, let me ask you a question because it's not every day I get to talk to someone in real time about this. And I'm just really curious. You keep on saying the deconstruction movement. Like, are you talking about like who you're seeing on TikTok? Is there like an, a, like I'm trying to say, here, here's what I'm saying. And maybe this is just perspective, but most of the people that I'm engaged with who would say they deconstructed would probably be like, yeah, I, I would affirm those things. Like, yeah, I have no problem affirming, you know, everything that you just said. So like, are you talking about like, Brandon Robertson, who's a progressive Christian, and then is he speaking for all the progressives in your mind? Like, I'm trying to figure out exactly who you're talking about because unless like I'm on like some weird version of TikTok, I'm not really seeing what you're seeing. Now, that being said, I'm also in my own world, right? Like I totally acknowledge that we're called the new evangelicals. I know I'm going to attract people who want to stay Christian, but it seems like your at least version that you have in your head of deconstruction seems to be mostly people who are like, well, God is one of many, screw the resurrection, screw it all. But yeah, I guess Jesus Jesus can fit somewhere ethically where I'm like, well, I guess those are some people, but most of the folks, even the ones who are way more progressive than me, would not hold to some of those views at all. And I'm more involved in like the academic conversations with quote unquote progressive Christians, and they're way more nuanced than that. So for you, like who has shaped that view of deconstruction for you? Like I, I'm just an honest question, would love to know. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the the way that I would answer that question goes back to some of the tenets of deconstruction being in its in its ethical foundation, a literary critique. When we move away from scripture being an authoritative, inspired, uh, and and inerrant text, then essentially what it creates is a choose your own adventure religious platitude, where in our world, the most aggrieved voices who may have access to the largest platforms have the ability to rewrite the framework for what we've known to be true or what the church has held to be true for, you know, nearly 2000 years. And so for me, the way that I would answer that question is going, I I think you're right, Tim, to, to a certain extent. I don't think that the way I've described deconstruction is where maybe even a majority of the people who would associate with the new evangelicals are, because probably even your name, the new evangelicals is too triggering for people who are beyond repair to a certain degree. They're just over the kind of Christian experience. For me, what I'm saying is that deconstruction at its root, primarily what it is, not a political movement, but instead a philosophical one whose foundation is a literary critique. When you move away from scripture being an authoritative text, 
what it does is it opens the floodgates for Jesus to be whatever you want, for God to be made in your image instead of you made in his image. And what it does is that takes you to, I mean, Comer's point is that progressive Christianity essentially gets to a place where you have no ethical stance or stand or stanchion or foundation against anything that the world would throw at you. That Christianity loses its ability to have any sense of ethical, epistemological or Christological claim if you move away from the fact that it is an authoritative text. So yeah. for me, I'm not going, you're here right now, but I'm looking at your, uh, not your movement, but like the people who sure. are in your movement. And I'm going, whether you're here right now or you're here in six months, this sure. is where it leaves. There is a only, way that seems right to a man, but in the end it's destruction. Like this is where it leads. There's only one fatal flaw though with your reasoning. This is the history of the Christian tradition. This is the history of Martin Luther. You don't think Martin Luther, forget the deconstruction term. You don't think Martin Luther greatly renegotiated what it meant to be a faithful Christian when he essentially uh, nailed his thesis and said scripture alone? Like, this is my whole point is like, I think you have to be, you keep shaking your head, but what I'm trying to tell you is that like, before Luther was the Catholic church, right? And now a lot of Protestants, especially the more reformed type are like, the Catholic church is a false religion. What they're saying is that the Christian tradition that preceded us by a thousand years has been false until Martin Luther came around and was like, no, English Protestant Bible alone or bust. And I'm just saying that in my understanding, Every Christian generation, to a degree, does renegotiate what it means to be a Christian. And we can look at this in positive or negative ways, right? You and I would both agree that when Bob Jones wrote his sermon saying the Bible's clear about segregation, and if you don't see it that way, you're a liberal, we'd be like, no, Bob Jones was way off. But he was certainly interpreting the Bible. I know it sounds convenient to say authoritative, inerrant, infallible word of God. That makes it seem like if you just read it, we come to the same conclusion. Unfortunately, the reality is, is that there are thousands of denominations. There are three major church splits with their own different religious texts, by the way. Their Bibles are slightly different with all very different views about that, right? Like the Eastern Orthodox tradition would say, hey, the church gave us the Bible. Therefore, the church is the one who interprets the Bible. Protestants would say, no, no, no. It's the Bible first and we interpret things through that. So even that shows a plurality of different ways of expressing the Christian tradition while still all holding on to death and resurrection of Jesus, you know, all those essentials. But for you, it seems like for you to move away from that puts people in this postmodern, you're going to evaporate to nothing world. When in reality, I would just say, dude, this is part of our history since the beginning. Even the doctrine of the Trinity was developed over time. We know this. It, it, it took time to develop. It was not baked in from day one. It took time to develop and now it's orthodoxy. But at some point it wasn't. Things do change. That's just reality. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously where we're going to disagree. So to me, comparing Martin Luther to the modern deconstruction movement would be like you lighting your house on fire and then telling the city you're remodeling it. Uh, when Luther uh, nailed his theses to the Catholic Church, he was calling the church back to a scriptural, foundational, historic Christianity. This wasn't Luther saying, hey, I was in the forest one day listening to a podcast and, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, God is, a, uh, you know, uh, whatever, I fill in the blank, uh, this type of, that type of thing. We're accepting these types of, it, it, Luther is calling the church back to historic 
orthodoxy. He's not rewriting the tenets of the faith and then in doing so uh, saying, hey, listen, we've now narrowly defined who God is based on the moral moment that we are in, and this is how he needs to operate, and uh, this is the way that we are kind of going to associate with him. He's calling the church back, and actually, when you read the history books about Luther, the thing that grieved him most is that his theses resulted in a schism that created the Protestant church. He was wanting to call the Catholic church back to yeah, right. its the purity of right. who it was. Then they but tried this to kill was him. not a then they tried to kill him. But I mean, again, the deconstruction movement does not want to make Luther its hero because Luther would tie the no, deconstructions no, no, no. to a stake and set him on out. fire. I mean, Re- I'm just really like, you know. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, finish your thought. Yeah, I, I, so I, I just think, again, I understand the analogy you're trying to make. I think it's a poor historical example because uh, even with like, and you're right, yeah, there are differences amongst the Orthodox branch, the Protestant branch, the Catholic branch. Major differences. They have out different of all, holy books. That's key. They have different Bibles, well, even dude. With, but, but, yeah, kind of, though. But even with the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, uh, 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 Catholic theology does not see the apocryphal books as the same level of weight as the 39 in the old and the 27 in the new. So, yes, you're right. If you were to go buy a Catholic Bible, they're going to include books from the Apocrypha that the Protestant Church wouldn't. But from a theological perspective, they don't have the same amount of weight. But what I'm saying is this. What unites the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, and the Protestant Church is that what they agree on is historic orthodoxy, who Jesus is. And, you know, you might be here today saying, hey, look, I'll affirm the deity of Christ. I'll affirm the lordship of Jesus. I'll affirm the vicarious death and resurrection and atonement. I go, look, that's great. What I'm saying is the majority of interactions I have with people who claim this label are are nowhere near that position. Okay. I, I need to tell you this because Lori insisted. LOL, Tim, can you just tell him that his definition of deconstruction doesn't align with the reality of the movement? There you go. I've told you now. There, There's the reality. <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time. I mean, again, Thanks, Lori. I, I don't want to get in the weeds on, and here's, I, you and I disagree even on the term. I, it's not a movement. I, deconstruction, in my mind, has never been a movement. It was a common piece of language that people hung onto to help describe what they were going through with with different results across the board. But my point is to what I'm trying to explain. Then we'll, we have to move on because we're already 33 minutes into this. I said an hour, and like we haven't even gotten really started yet on the big stuff. But my only point, Russell, was to say that the Christian tradition has evolved and shifted many different times in many different ways and yes of course the majority you keep going back to this who jesus is piece i get that i'm with you like i affirm resurrection i see in creed but by the way even at one point those creeds didn't exist right they came into existence at some point they were new and now we hold on to them but i think that what i'm trying to explain is that whether we like it or not christians are shaped by their cultural and contextual moment martin luther's a good example of this martin luther writes that it's worse for you to practice birth control than to participate in incest now, clearly, you and I would not agree with that, but Martin Luther is living in a contextual framework. So context and culture does shape, to a degree, how we live out maybe these beliefs, right? So maybe how I think about the resurrection and how you think about it are the same, but we have very different lived-out realities of that. And the Christian tradition, really, Dr. Adam Clark would say traditions, uh, you know, has been pretty wide in how it's expressed that, right? We've seen it used in good ways and in bad ways. So that's my only point. I hear what you're saying, but... 
in my mind, I just think like, I don't know how you get away from the fact that we have a lot of different church splits and schisms and yada, 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 all claiming the same beliefs with very different outcomes. So, um, okay, let's move into our actual topics that we have kind of lined up here. My God, let's talk about Christian nationalism. This is probably one of my my big pieces for you uh, and where we're going to disagree. And then I want to kind of get into some of the rhetoric behind it. I have been to uh, America Fest. I'm going back to America Fest uh, in, in December. I already got my ticket. I track this stuff as close as I can. I've interviewed a lot of scholars who study this stuff. I've read the data on it from Pew and from PRRI. You know, do you, you, you spoke at Turning Point Pastor Summit. I know that you don't always agree with like Turning Point. We talked about this, but for you, you, do you think Christian nationalism is a real threat? Do you see yourself as a Christian nationalist? What What are your thoughts on that? I think you're a closet Christian nationalist who's on Turning Point's payroll, and you're actually a spy. You're like a spy. You're a double agent. You're on Charlie's payroll, and you're a double agent spying out the deconstruction land. See? I got Let you. me just say, if that was the case, I would have a private jet. I'd be charging them so much money. So. <laughs> I'm dead. Yeah, I mean, I think similar to, I think it's, I think there's overlap to our conversation on deconstruction because again, it's, it's, it's how you classify it. And it's the dialectical framework that we agree to that causes us to have, you know, some sense of commonality or interchange of, of free thought moving forward. Uh, I, I think in our world today, uh, the term Christian nationalism has in many ways became kind of a, 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 a boogeyman bludgeoned used every time that somebody who is of faith dares to, uh, you know, make the argument that their faith informs the, the way that they put into practice their public policy in the public square of civic engagement. Now, certainly, because there are, and you and I have talked about this, certainly there are voices uh, in uh, our nation and in other nations today, places in Eastern Europe and others, who would yeah. just straight up advocate for essentially Christian theocracy. That's what we want, uh, and this is how we're going to do it. And if you disagree, we're putting you, you know, out on the outskirts of society, and you know things like that. Obviously, I, I appreciate that we live in a democracy. I want to live in a democracy. I think one day we will live in a theocracy, and I mean that because when Christ returns, I believe even a literal return of Christ to the earth where he will reign as king. And mm. so, uh, but until that time happens, I am very happy with a democracy. Uh, uh, but what I don't mean is that I don't mean democracy, maybe in the progressive sense of the word where we have, you know, sanitized that term to such a degree that, you know, really what this meant was kind of an agnostic governing system where uh, people of faith were shut out and never, uh, never allowed their religious experiences to frame in the way that they vote or think about issues. And so, uh, I, yes, I would agree Christian nationalism is a thing. Uh, but the idea that Christian nationalism in its truest sense is a prevalent force in America, I think is ridiculous. I don't think it is. Uh, 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 and I think that term has become a very easy sword in the hand of people who love to play the identity politics game to say mm -hmm. everyone who dares to have a cross on their necklace or a verse on their door of Congress is somebody who's trying to ah, 
you want to lock up all the Tim Whitakers of the world and put them into camps. And it's like, mm, mm-hmm. what are we, what are we talking about? What are we talking about here? I, that, so it, one more thing, it, when I think about Christian nationalism as well, uh, I think about the vision of a Christian nation from writers like Chesterton, writers like Augustine, writers like C.S. Lewis and others uh, who may not have used the term Christian nationalism, but they helped frame in in many ways, the last generation's view of what it looked like to desire a a nation that reflected the values that you hold dear. And there should be nothing shameful or embarrassing or weird about advocating for the values you have. There is no such thing as secular neutrality. You advocate for your moral framework as much as I advocate for mine. Where the, where the Christian nationalism piece could come in would be now if I'm sitting here on the podcast and I'm saying, and I want to make sure that we pass a law that makes sure that Tim doesn't have his First Amendment right to disagree with Russell on a YouTube interview. To me, I'm like, what? What, what are we talking about? That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as far as going like, yeah, of course I'm pro-life. Mm-hmm. I'm not pro-life because scientifically life begins at conception. Mm -hmm. I'm pro-life because theologically, I believe life begins at conception. Mm -hmm. Well, why are you pro-traditional marriage? Scientific? No, theologically. Mm -hmm. Because what I believe frames in the way that I interact in the public square of civic engagement. And by the way, so does what you believe. So does what Joe Biden believes. So does what Kamala Harris believes. So does what Gavin Newsom believes. So what does Donald Trump believes? We take ourselves with us wherever we go, which is the great tragedy of the human experience. Mm-hmm. We take so, our, we don't see things the way they are. We see things the way we are. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I just go, I agree with you. We talked about this. Yes. There are some in that movement who they almost espouse theocracy, mm-hmm. which both you and I oppose. But yes, I and, think that's and very your, rare. And to your credit, you've been very consistent that the election was not stolen, right? We, we talked about this oftentimes. You know, I know that you have strong feelings around Trump, and you and I agree strongly on that. So I'm happy to hear that part as well. My first question to you is, you know, you mentioned that, like, you think this Christian nationalism term is kind of a boogeyman. And I, this is an honest question, Russell. Like, you know, I'm not here to ask you questions that to try and get you into a corner, but, like, what do you do with like all the data that's been done by like PRRI, by P research? Like this stuff, th- this is not deconstruction movement stuff where it's like, there's, it's kind of elusive. There's really been like no serious studies on it. The, the Christian nationalism has a whole world of sociologists, economics, uh, theologians, uh, you know, researchers giving like um, framework to, to what's happening in certain parts of the American psyche. So there is definitely data on this that shows uh, that roughly, you know, between like uh, 30 to 45 percent of Americans hold some form of a Christian nationalist ideology. It's on a spectrum. It's not all Charlie Kirk. OK, there's a, a range there. But for you, would, are you just like, eh, you can't trust that data? It's rigged. Like, how do you respond to that when people give you like, well, here's the research showing that I'm not just making this up. Yeah, I mean, to me, I think that that term has largely been hijacked and redefined to mean a lot of things that the past generation would have never referred to as Christian nationalism. And so when you look at the crosstabs for some of this polling data, I mean, they're asking questions like sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes that are as general as like, do you believe that the Bible is an appropriate textbook for the framing of public policy. Okay, well, any Christian worth their salt who would hold to inerrancy, authority, and inspiration, 
which I know not everybody does. I get it. But I'm like, yeah, of course we would answer. Yeah. I mean, and not just public policy, but like everything in life, like the way you handle your marriage, the way you treat your kids, what you do with your finances, your sexual ethic, your identity, your, eh, yes, yes. We would look at scripture as. But but to be fair, okay, this is where I'm going to push you hard now because it's not about the Bible. It's about the particular interpretation of the Bible. And you and I have talked about this before. You know, and I oftentimes will quote James 5, which is a pretty damning indictment on the rich business owners who exploit their workers for unfair wages, right? Most Christians in your position that I know are not advocating for a higher wage or even for universal health care or for paid family leave because that's socialism that's an individual issue but then they pull two or three verses to prove that abortion should be a national policy or or um you know a queer marriage should be outlawed so it's not really about the bible it's about using the bible and picking out whatever verse. and i do this too i'm i've i've told you this i'm not i'm not here to say like somehow i'm more genuine than you are in this but i'm just saying like the narrative of the bible there are way more way more verses and themes talking about like the oppression of like marginalized groups and not welcoming the foreigner and yet christian right-wing christian evangelicals okay i won't use christian nationalists tend to really be pretty hostile to those kinds of ideas and really embrace things that i have a hard time seeing because they have one or two proof texts to use them so i just want to clarify that i don't think it's so much the bible as in how we interpret the bible because if i use if i use james 5 to prove why we need fair wages i'm called a socialist suddenly the bible doesn't matter anymore or well, that's a hard issue. That's not a public policy issue. So there's always kind of a workaround to ignore that part and then to kind of say, well, Genesis 1 is clear. Therefore, we have to make this a Supreme Court decision to overturn a a burger fell. Yeah, I actually think you hit the nail on the head. I really do. And and I'll explain it this way. When it is the advocacy of a conservative idea coming from somebody who is religious it's christian nationalism when it's the advocacy of a progressive idea coming from somebody who is religious it's just common sense public policy so it's christian nationalism Mm -hmm. for thee but not christian nationalism for me so my point is this Mm -hmm. what i'd rather do is just go let's you and i just have the debate on uh and and what's funny is and a lot of your viewers don't know this there's a lot of things that we disagree on obviously but one of the things that we found out hanging out in nashville is that there are several issues of public policy that you and i actually agree on because both you and i actually share kind of a a, a, an affinity for it to some degree economic populism and so to to some degree uh but uh, i look at this and i go okay well let's just have let's just have a debate over the facts let's just talk about student debt let's just talk about immigration policy because i'm married to a war refugee immigrant okay so let's just have that conversation let's talk about those things because uh, I think that's really interesting. But what I've found is that, again, I'm not saying you do this, but I'm just saying it seems like this is the mainstream narrative that when it's a Christian who advocates for what would be considered a right-wing conservative issue of public policy, you're a Christian nationalist. But when you are a Christian who advocates for a left-wing idea, you are just a sympathetic, you know, loving teddy bear. And I just go, let's let's just drop the identity politics here and then just have the debate because honestly the amount of people in our world today in america who are truly truly making the argument for true christian nationalism theocratic rule i mean it is a fraction of one percent minority minority there's a lot of people who talk about it in a way that's not helpful but as far as actually saying theocracy yeah 
So let's talk about that. Christian does that make Nash, sense? It does, but you're wrong. <laughs> I'm gonna explain to you. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some thoughts on this actually. I understand that. I've heard that used all the time. Christian nationalism does not mean conservative. Russell Moore is a conservative evangelical who is not Christian nationalist. David French is a conservative evangelical who's not Christian nationalist. Christian nationalism is a particular framework that mandates that Christians, mainly ones like them, are at the top of the hierarchy ruling in all sources of life from the top down. This could be manifested through the charismatic seven mountain mandate belief, right? That we Christians have an obligation from God to take over the seven spheres of influence to rule them in, in order to usher in the reign of God, or it can look like the more uh, conservative, uh, reformed Doug Wilson theonomy, which is really pulling from a guy named R.J. Rush Dooney, who would say, hey, we have an obligation to get rid of essentially U.S. law and, and institute what we call biblical law, largely based off of certain portions of the Old Testament. That is not the same thing as as even a conservative Christian. Christian nationalism is a very specific framework. The difference would be, and let's just use, for sake of an argument, let's say I'm, I'm the progressive Christian here, right? The difference is that I'm not advocating that people like me need to be in charge and that if we're not, um, you know, God's going to judge the nation. Uh, people like me are advocating for things that affect all of our neighbors, hopefully to help them, not to s- consolidate power to people that look like me. So for example, queer marriage, right? I'm not queer. I'm not gay at all, but I support and reckon and realize that my neighbors who are queer have a constitutional right to live in freedom, to be married to whoever they choose to be. I want to defend that freedom for them, even though it doesn't affect me at all. Christian nationalism is all about creating the other and then making a war out of the other and then having to destroy the other. And you know this because you and I watched this at Turning Point. You were at the same conference I was. You know when Rob McCoy got up there, that one of the first things he said was that we're, that Christians are in danger of being thrown in prison by Joe Biden because of, of just us holding our beliefs. That's not true. The problem is that people like Charlie Kirk and Turning Point are doing everything they can to really take over and rule in an authoritarian manner, hence their support of Trump, right? We both know, and we agree here, I know this, that the insurrection, all this stuff was dangerous, was bad for democracy, bad for the country. Charlie Kirk and his folks have done a lot of work to downplay that, and they're all behind Trump again. Why? Because Trump made the agreement early on in 2016, I will give you the power you need. I will make Christianity great again. That's that's the difference here. So I just want to be very emphatic about that. I'm not talking about someone who is more conservative than me. I'm talking about a very specific belief that says Christian supremacy, this is Matthew Taylor, Dr. Matthew Taylor would say this, the Christian supremacy must rule over the country. Pluralism is bad. You know, having other people of other faiths in power is bad. Me as a progressive, I would not say it at all. I would say we need the plurality of our society to help make laws that benefit all of us, not just a particular group. Yeah, well, and again, I think some of this is some of this is the framing, some of this is the classification, some of this is the definitions. But you know, for me, one of the things that you mentioned that I'm intimately familiar with because of the movement that I have been born in is like the Seven Mountain Mandate. Well, you know, the Seven Mountain Mandate, uh, which was you know originally taught, I think, by Bill Bright, and now it's more effusive, Lance and Wall, no. charismatic, yeah. Lance Wall now, prophetic circles, Peter you Wagner, know, a lot of these guys. 
Yeah, Wagner. Uh, uh, some of these guys I've known personally, and they've passed away, or I know them personally today. But uh, the seven mountain mandate has never been uh, realized uh, in a strictly uh, political framework. It's always been taught in a missiological framework. The idea that, uh, like Daniel, like Joseph, uh, like Esther, uh, Old Testament figures, uh, who to some degree had an overlay of political influence, but they were all people that God had used in strategic times in secular nations, elevated their influence to be voices that could be used by God to do supernatural things. It's always been taught, every time I've heard it, it has always been taught in a missiological framework, not a purely political one. Although I would agree one of the mountains in the seven mountain is the political mountain. But the way that I've heard it taught about the books that I've read about it, and I, I, I have, and I know you have too, but but uh, the way that it's always been taught in, in, in the circles that I've run in is that, like scripture says, if you will humble yourself under the mighty hand of the Lord, he will promote you in due time. This is about God promoting people during strategic seasons to be voices of influence, to help steer the affairs of a family, a community, a nation, whatever it is. Right. And so I think what you're hitting on though, is a more militant kind of extremist, maybe dominion type, like we're going to get in there and, you know, uh, we're going to be the ones who are going to be locking people in camps and we're bringing back the crusades. And it's like Shia LaBeouf, like say Christ is Lord. And I'm like, that is not the move. What you just said though, is what you just said about like, you know, the missiological approach and like, you know, God's elevating people. That's the rhetoric that gave birth to Trump and that gave rise to all these prophets who were telling us that, no, God has a mission for Trump, even though he lost the election. Like, I don't know. And again, I know that this is your world, but I've also been following it pretty closely. and I've done some research on it. I don't want to claim to be the expert here, but like, dude, that was the rhetoric. That was the framework that gave rise to what we're seeing now. This idea that God is raising up those in authority AKA people who look and believe just like us. Joe Biden is never going to be seen as a legitimate president, even though the logic is whoever God raises up, he has chosen. But now that Joe Biden's in office, no, that's a fake president. President Trump is our guy. So I'm just saying like, this is Christian nationalism. It's it, the difference is, it, the, 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 the issue is not the beliefs. We all have different beliefs. It's what we're advocating for that makes Christian nationalism what it is, along with a very specific framework that we have a specific corner on how God works and whoever God raises up that we deem to have risen up is God ordained and anointed and whoever we deem are the enemies, which usually means the liberals. That's what I mean. Sean Foyt wrote an article about this where he literally called liberals demons. Okay. So it's been completely interwoven now with the political affiliation along the culture war lines, usually of abortion, you know, queer marriage and maybe CRT or the, now it's the grooming rhetoric. And it's been um, it's been theologized to now be, well, look, we're on team God. God is raising up leaders to defeat the darkness. And the darkness is all of our political opponents that have infiltrated all of the spheres. We have to get to work. That is Christian nationalism. Exactly it. Yeah, well, and, and again, I just this is just going to be one of the areas I think that we disagree on. But I, I think for me, it's like. Uh, and, and we all do this to a certain degree. I'm guilty of this as well, but it's like, sure. well, the public policy that I believe is really for the flourishing of the human experience and the public policy that you advocate for is really 
the shutting down of people that you disagree with. So therefore your views trend towards, you know, nationalism and my views trend towards, you know, freedom. And so like, to me, like the framing is like, it's, it's inarticulate because again, it, it is not this platitude of a pluralistic society where, Hey, if you're a Christian who doesn't believe in gay marriage or does not believe in abortion, uh, Hey, uh, you have, uh, just the same right as I do to argue on behalf of those values in the public square. It's if you hold those values and if in doing so you advocate for those values, then you are seen in a pejorative category of somebody who kind of has these nationalistic type leanings. I mean, this is the way the New York Times writes about Christian nationalism. This is the way that the FBI weaponized uh, agents to go to PTA meetings where parents are upset because we have graphic books about sexual confusion in libraries with kids who are third graders and they have access to it. I mean, they, they put parents from the PTA on the most, you know, on the watch list. And then Biden came out and said Christian nationalism or is the greatest threat the country faces. I mean, it's laughable on its face. They and so when I look Christian at this, nationalism gave us the insurrection, bro. It is the most dangerous thing our nation faces. Have you not seen the signage? There was a prayer to Jesus Christ inside the Senate Capitol thanking him for this opportunity and he even said Jesus Christ we invoke your name there were Bibles there were Jesus save signs there were um the uh what's the uh the NAR um signs uh, something of heaven uh signs flying around appeal to Dude, heaven appeal to heaven signs how can you really say hey that's laughable when two years ago they stormed the Capitol building with a legit noose trying to hang the vice president looking for Nancy <laughs> Pelosi. I mean, come on, dude. Come on. Yeah. And listen, you're not going to get somebody who defends the activities of Jan 6, because when that happened, I said, what are we doing? In fact, that next Sunday, I stood up on, on at church on, when I preached and I said, hey, if anybody here thinks that that was helpful for the movement, you're dead wrong because it wasn't helpful. I mean, I think it is important to note that, you know, Jan 6 was the day that, you know, the entire uh, Democrat Party decided that they were against property damage because, you know, for the previous uh, two years, we had, you know, billions of dollars in damage in major cities on fire all across the nation. Uh, but that uh, being said, dude, even that, no, just, dude, dude, the BLM protest, you can look this again this is data are you with the data not me 96 percent peaceful for the largest protests in history okay and of course the majority of people were like yes the damage that was done was bad but to compare that to one protest that turned violent that stormed our capitol building is just not fair that is not I mean, even a good comparison bro 96 peaceful <laughs> Give in Seattle, it wasn't major. In Seattle, it wasn't majoritively. It wasn't ninety six percent peaceful. They took, they took over. They took over six city blocks, and then now the city is in major lawsuits because people got raped, murdered, and robbed at record rates in the autonomous zone. And uh, in doing so, the police wouldn't respond. So, like you know, uh, it was like the famous like CNN interview where that guy was like, "Mostly peaceful protests are happening," and behind him, like the entire city block yeah, is no, on fire. I, so, like, what, what I'm trying a to- majority. If, by the way, I'm not a defender of Jan 6, but your no, same logic applies to Jan 6, which is this. A majority of the people who showed up to Jan 6 did not storm the Capitol. Dude, the place was overrun. You can only fit so many people no, inside the Capitol no, building. No, no, I agree. But I, what I'm saying, though, is when you look at the video of the rallies that were happening Jan 6, 
of all of the tens of thousands of people who had showed up and they're doing all these rallies, a majority of them never stepped foot on Capitol property. That doesn't excuse the people who did. I'm not a, a sympathizer or an apologist for people who break laws because they want to be all upset that their candidate lost. I mean, it's like, let's be honest. Yeah. But uh, um, can I do, do, do you know what I mean? I yeah. do, but I mean, dude, I mean, come on, bro. Give me a break. Look at this. I don't want to hear it. I mean, come, come on, come on. I mean, this is ridiculous. Anyway, I digress. I'm just, no, I'm just I mean, to look, like look, I, I, I agree that, and, and we have seen this even in the prosecution. I mean, clearly uh, individuals who stormed the Capitol and were uh, arrested for those activities, you know, are now going through the legal process. And most of them, at least in my opinion, are, are, are getting treated pretty drastically, dramatically by the justice system. It is what it is at this point. But what I'm saying yeah. is, uh, you know, uh, you know, one of the things that people said about uh, uh, the Jan Six was well, all these Christian nationalists, and of course there was there there, there was there was people who, from a Christian perspective, uh, they've had their ideas and beliefs weaponized in ways that are not helpful. But people are looking at like the shaman as like the uh, uh, the mascot for Christian nationalism. And I'm like, this dude ain't even a Christian. This dude's crazy. You know, and so like it feels like the rest of us all of a sudden get lumped in to the behavior of people who are on the fringe but russell russell first off really quick i have a correction to make on my end i i was wrong it's there Sorry. were 90 according to the times according to a study 93 percent, not 96 were the times i try to well I, I i know and this is what's so interesting to me right is that i've noticed this trend where it's like if someone gives data or like hey here's, here's what they find depending on the source if it's seen as liberal it's just written off like oh well you really can't trust the reporting it's like okay like all right well if that's the standard then we're all we're all screwed if the standard is this piece of data doesn't go against whatever thing I wanted it to be like but my my here's my here's my concern my concern Russell let's talk about you as a human because you and I have talked you and I have talked okay and you are I fully admit you are at least in conversation way more nuanced and willing to recognize that things are complicated at times but then you'll go and you'll speak on stage at the pastor summit, where Turning Point is throwing it, where Charlie Kirk is this person who spreads blatantly false things about the election, about vaccines, about how January 6th wasn't that big of a deal. And so you can understand why folks would say, well, Russell's there in support, talking on one of their panels. Obviously, he must be comfortable enough to be in that space even if he disagrees. They're not they're not big enough disagreements where he wouldn't go there in support. Like if I asked you, Russell, hey, come out to my conference. Um, we're gonna talk about queer inclusion. I want you to talk in support of it. You'd be like, no, I can't do that. I don't believe in that. I'm not even gonna try to pretend that I believe in that. But for you speaking at Turning Point USA, you have at least enough of, of an agreement where, well, I can overlook all of Charlie's rhetoric and all of Turning Point's damage but because we can agree on these issues. So th does that make sense how people can still make that assumption with you? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think it's a fair question. Um, okay, I would, I, I would, I would, sh I would share on queer inclusion at one of your conferences on your panel. It may not be, 
<laughs> may not be what you'd want me to. But, you know, just to be clear, uh, when I have spoken at uh, these Turning Point events, nobody has ever uh, uh, asked to see my talking points prior or said, hey, listen, these are the things that you're going to speak to and that you must speak in support of. And in fact, I think the last time that I spoke at a Turning Point event, one of my taglines was, if you talk more about the second coming of Trump than you do the second coming of Christ, you're part of the problem. Mm. And so like that probably didn't win me maybe a lot of friends in the room who may not hold that opinion. But like for me, I, I am who I am, whether I'm on your panel, whether I'm on Turning Point's panel. For me, what Turning Point represented was a platform of ecumenical leaders, 1,100, 1,200, who are all gathering in Nashville. By the way, my background in the nonprofit space and the political space was I was a church coordinator. So I worked predominantly with conservative churches in Washington State to help turn out the vote. And so, like, for me, this is like a very natural environment for me to find my voice in because sure. I know how to speak to these communities. And so, so, like, uh, for me, I go, yo, we like I, the panel needs uh, the voice of somebody who has experience doing this. And at the same time can say, hey, listen, uh, we got to chart a course here, get on the same page, figure out why we believe what we believe, and then hopefully talk about it in intelligible ways to help steer the conversation. So I think for me, again, just like for you, you've got a lot of friends, uh, uh, even like me, I consider you a, a, a friend and I'm on your uh, a platform, but there are things that we would agree on. There's going to be a lot of things that we disagree on. But, you know, for me, I just go, Look, I'll go just about anywhere, speak to just about anyone, engage in just about any type of of dialogue, because I actually think that we actually need more of this and less of the identity politics of if you've ever tweeted something that I disagree with, screw you, I'm not going to stand on your stage. And, you know, for me, what Charlie is doing with pastors, whether you like it or not, is right now the largest gathering of socially conservative religious people for the purpose of turning out the vote and helping make an impact on national elections. Yeah, and for, to me, I'm yeah. like, yeah, I could get behind that all day. I, I Okay, two things. Does that make sense? One, yeah, it does. Number one, your video is really choppy. All of a sudden, I'm not sure what's going on. So just FYI, you look like you're, like you're in stop frame like this. So I'm not sure if, if it's your Sorry. connection or what. No, you're all right. Um, here's here's I mean, maybe one of my, our final conversation pieces. And, and this is really where, where where I get very, comp, I get very confused. Um, Again, man, like I, in the case of Turning Point, because we have a common, we have a common understanding there. I mean, their entire platform is not built on like thinking about how do we help out all of our neighbors. It's not built on how do we think about. Oh, I lost Russell. Oh, hi friends, it's just me solo. Are we doing okay? You guys are really chatting it up. You guys are really chatting it up. Oh my God, my bad. I'm new to Tim and have been all along been addressing Tim when I met Russell. Oh, no problem, Thoughtmocker. Nice to meet you. Um, yeah, guys, it's good to see all of you. You have a lot of questions here. Oh my goodness. I'll see if Russell comes back into the chat. This is fascinating. I What I'm going to ask Russell is like, I don't understand how people can claim to be followers of Jesus and then engage in the level of vitriol and rhetoric that hurts people. Oh, here we go. Here's Russell. Let's see. See if we got him. Yo. Yo. Hey, sorry about that. Um, I was, while you were speaking, Charlie Kirk hacked the network. Oh, I thought it was a demon. To take you out. I thought it was a demon. 
Um, it, it, it was. It, it was actually. It was actually somebody from New Evangelicals. Actually, yeah. it was a board member. A board member. Sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, Am I yeah. back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're still pretty choppy, but it's all good, I guess. It just is what it is. Um, so, I guess my final question is: Here's what I'm really, and I've asked, dude. I've asked Rob McCoy this. I've asked people who work for Turning Point this. I've asked people all across the spectrum who engage in these spaces the same question. It's kind of a twofold question. Number one, it seems like. And I, I see Charlie's Twitter every day. I see his posts all the time. It seems like Turning Point is rallied around the fear that Western civilization is on the brink of collapse because of like the queer agenda. Meaning it always seems to be about something that we're trying to make an enemy about. It doesn't seem very thoughtful and like, okay, hey, you know what? As Christians, we're called to love our neighbor. How do we figure out the, the healthcare problem that we have in our country where people are in tons of, of, of healthcare debt? Or like, how do we figure out our immigration policy? We want secure borders. We also want a path to citizenship. Let's talk about the solutions. It's always about like how the invasion are coming to steal America. I mean, I have a clip of him saying that. He literally says in the clip, you're the invaders talking about the people who don't agree with him and we're the Americans. And so as a Christian, let's get to the, like the theology, right? Like love God, love our neighbor. What, what, and I'm going to be honest with you, Russell. I had a few people reach out to me who were like, why are you talking to Russell? This guy has said things that like, I'm queer. This has really hurt me. I've seen what he says. And I'm like, I know you're a pastor. I know that ultimately you get into that work because you care about people, but it just seems like the 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 circles that you're operating in are more about making enemies out of others uh, who who you think are problematic instead of like this love your neighbor love God mentality that invites people in to find better paths forward. Help me understand that because I've asked a lot of people this. I cannot get past the blatant dehumanization of marginalized groups that have become the target for these organizations. It seems incredibly antichrist to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the press secretary for Charlie or for Turning Point. Um, you know, for me, uh, uh, when I get invited on platforms to speak to um, what I believe to be true about public policy or what God is doing in Seattle, you know, those are invitations that uh, I take because I want to tell the story. But, you know, I can tell you the perspective of somebody who pastors a church in maybe the most liberal or top three most liberal cities in the entire nation. And uh, two blocks from the University of Washington, our church is located on Frat Row, you know, and I can tell you the stories of people whose lives have been, you know, absolutely um, transformed, who uh, come out of uh, the LGBTQ lifestyle, who come out of uh, different uh, types of um, trauma and drama and dysfunction and you name it, uh, who are part of our team, part of our serve team, who've been baptized in our church. We just baptized 124 people last week. And so like for me, I think like sometimes the way that it can come across is like, hey, if you're calling people to fidelity in Christ and you believe that fidelity in Christ part of that is uh, following the sexual ethic of the New Testament in specific, uh, the way that the Apostle Paul teaches on sex, that if you do that, then it's like dehumanizing or like if you're telling people that being gay is antithetical to the way that you understand scripture, you know, for me, it's like, look, I'm not, I'm not trying to speak about things in a way where I go, if you sin differently than me, then I'm perpetually angry at you because I don't think that that's helpful. But for me, I'm like, Hey, when I speak about the pro-life issue, I think abortion is the greatest civil rights issue of our generation. And I don't even think it's close. 
when I think about the sexual ethic debate, I go, your life is not your own. You have given up the right to self-identify if you follow Christ. I mean, Scripture says you were bought with a price. Your life is not your own. Yeah, and so when concern, I communicate strongly like that, yeah. I think people maybe in your community, they hear that and they go, well, that's a hater and that's dehumanizing. And I can't. And to me, I'm like, the only other option that would be satisfactory to somebody who might be a part of your community is that if I became uh, queer affirming, which I'm just not going to do. And no, so like for me, true. I that's go. That's not true. This is, this is the nuance that I don't think you're able to see. Russell Moore is not affirming. But Russell, well, I don't put words in Russell's mouth, but someone like a Russell, from what I understand, would still understand that in a pluralistic society of 300 million people, many of which do not claim to be Christian, they have a right to exist and not be vilified and demonized just because they have representation in the media, right? But, but... The vibe that we get from people, maybe like you, but definitely from the turning point types, is that even that is a problem. The fact that queer people even exist and that a movie might have a, a lead gay character is the queer agenda coming to take away their children. There's a, um, there's, a, there's miles of difference between saying, hey, as a pastor, our church has this theological conviction. I understand that. Okay, yeah, the Bible's complicated. People see things a different way. Fine, do what you want. But when that becomes, and therefore... For you to be a Christian anywhere else or for you to vote, to be part of a, of a civilized society that's God-honoring, you have to hold these views. That's where, to me, I'm like, what? Like, these views directly impact the lives of other people who do not hold to your view. They don't hold to your view of the Bible. They aren't even Christian. And guess what? In a society that is governed by a constitution that does not mention God, that does mention religious freedom for both on the positive and negative side, people have a right to exist and to have access to equal rights despite your theological conviction they just do that's the difference for me does that make sense yeah and i mean i think uh, for me the majority of people that i interact with uh would not have an issue affirming the right uh for people to exist who are a part of the lgbtq plus community uh i i have no issue with uh somebody who uh chooses a different sexual identity or lifestyle living peaceably in uh in a democratized society i mean of of course i mean this isn't iran this isn't you know no uh, no gay people exist here you know they're not allowed no of course they have just as as much of a right to hold a job, to engage in civil society, to be a part of the democratic process, to vote, to advocate for their candidates, of course, um, you know. And so, uh, uh, for me, this is not about trying to uh, uh, rid the public square of, of people who disagree with with me uh, or with others, but it is about going. Hey, uh, oftentimes, I believe Christians especially of the conservative ilk, are made to feel as if any time that they advocate for their values, they are doing it from a narrow fundamental perspective. But if you advocate for your values from a Christian progressive perspective, uh, it is, it is you know, very virtuous and altruistic. And for me, I go, okay, well, for the progressive Christian who advocates for abortion up until the ninth month, uh, certainly I would view that as a public policy that infringes on the right to live, which is enshrined in the Constitution. And so to me, I go like, hey, I think that this perspective actually works both ways. Uh, I think some of the most dehumanizing public policy that we have in our world today is, is, the, is the pro-choice position. And so, um, you, you know, for me, I go like, uh, uh, 
Yes. Uh, anytime that we advocate for uh, a, a public policy position that is moral in nature, uh, 100% uh, it creates bifurcated categories uh, of, 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 of individuals, not with different rights or different access or different God-given value. But yeah, for sure, if you advocate for traditional marriage and somebody who is uh, part of the LGBTQ community says, well, I want to get married, but the laws that you advocate wouldn't allow me to get married. Absolutely. That, I mean, we are making a moral decision in the public square that, yes, you are right, has a direct implication on somebody else. But I look at it and I go, right. that has existed from the beginning of yeah. our democracy. Uh, and it happens all the time in progressive places. But I feel like progressive people aren't able to see it. They're like, well, no, no, no. We advocate for freedom. No, so it's just freedom. You, you, so, you Christians um, want to shut down these people. And I'm like, well, what? I mean, Russell, it's not hard to look at like the actual like, OK, let's just talk. And we have to wrap up pretty soon. We're way over time. Thanks, friends, for hanging out. No, but, I mean, we're going I, all day. Here's what I don't get. Like, I look at how Republicans and statistically Republicans tend to be more Christian, especially white evangelical. I look at what they vote for. Every time there's a mass shooting, we hear the same thing. We can't get any gun control in effect because, you know, we need more thoughts and prayers or this and that. Then they say, well, it's a mental health issue. Then they vote against expanding mental health resources. We still can't get affordable health care passed. There's no push from any Republican I know of to say, you know what? Affordable health care is a thing. Or, hey, we need more affordable birth control so we can reduce the, the rates of unwanted pregnancies. Or, hey, the minimum wage is ridiculously low and people are dying. Um, or, hey, you know, corporations are profiting billions while paying their employees low wages. That's not the rhetoric. Okay, the rhetoric is, and we just saw this in the past election, vote no on, on option one in, in, in Ohio uh, because of our view on abortion. Okay, there are people who say we want to overturn a Burgerfell, which is the uh, the right for gay people to get married. Uh, that sounds like a pretty big infringement on someone else's right, don't you think? It doesn't affect you at all. Even so, someone's gay marriage right now does not affect you in the slightest. But for some reason, there are Christians out there who say, whoa, Tim, if you tell me that's a bad idea, you're infringing on my right to punch someone else in the face. And what I'm telling, trying to tell you is that freedom, right? Toleration means that where your right to swing a fist begins, it stops where my face is. There's a limit to what you can enact over other people. You are free, Russell, as a human, as well as I, to think whatever you want. You can think mentally any thought you want, and you can't be arrested for it. You can think that being gay is sinful. But for you to say, well, because of my religious conviction, this other couple must now not have the access to the same legal rights I do maritally, that's the problem. And that's the difference. I don't know how else to explain that. Like, and you know, I, I'm heated with you because we've talked about this stuff. So I know we had that rapport. I know you don't take it personally, but like, I don't understand how someone could be like, I'm all about freedom, but the gays can't get married. We got to keep people in financial poverty. We can't do student loan forgiveness, even though the whole system is predatory. And the Bible says so much about financial predatory systems, but that's not biblical. We just need more guns. We need, you know, it's like, what are we talking about as Christians? Like, what is the conservative Christian ethic? You don't take climate change seriously. What are we talking about here? I can tell you what it is in my view. It's fighting the groomers, wherever they are, somewhere in the public schools. Maybe it's critical race theory. It's how, you know, media is going down to shit because gay people are on the TV and how, oh, the election was stolen in 2020 and Trump's our guy. Like, it's not a very compelling platform. I'm just telling you as someone on the outside in, it's I'm not very compelled and rant. Well, and, and, and you know, I think that's the value of these conversations, because the reality is, is that, you know, we're able to have this interchange without like 
going like, oh my God, I hate Tim and we can't have a conversation. But, you know, for me, this is kind of like the classic progressive positioning of uh, the conservative uh, platform. It's like, well, you know, Christians uh, didn't like Obamacare. Uh, and so, therefore, we are against uh, healthcare access. Well, Obamacare has been a nightmare. It's destroyed the free market. Healthcare prices are up in Washington State four hundred percent. And uh, but if you are a Christian who didn't support Obamacare, now all of a sudden you don't care about healthcare access to people who are poor. And so, again, part of this is like the you know MSNBC framing of the conservative platform. But uh, for me, the argument of like, hey, well, listen, you can you can advocate for public policy. As long as it doesn't infringe on the way that I define freedom for somebody else, you know, to me, I just go again, this is where we get back to the dialectical framing, because the reality is public policy by its very nature is not neutral. Every time that we pass a law, whether it's related to marriage, life, finance, funding, healthcare, traffic laws, you name it. It is to a certain degree or another, the infringement on somebody else's uh, 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 way in which they live, way in which they operate, way in which they think. It absolutely is. You know, we don't live in this kind of pseudo libertarian experience where it's overly individualistic and every man for himself. And as long as you don't punch somebody on the street, you're good. That is not the society we, that we live in. And so the, the, our, 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 our jurisprudence system, our entire legal framework, our entire constitution, absolutely. It is, it is based on what do we determine as the most beneficial for society, for the advancement of Western civilization, for the greatest democratic experiment to ever be on the earth, which is, you know, to me, the United States of America and the individual laboratories of democracy, which are the states. Uh, what are the best ways that we continue to advance the uh, idea known as America? And yes, you are 100% right. When we make moral decisions in the public square of civic engagement, whether they are progressively moral or conservatively moral, the net result of those decisions is the hemming in of somebody else is unilateral, uh, what, whether you want to call it permission, whether you want to call it freedom, whatever it is. Yes, you're right. And so for me, I go, I'm honest about that. No, I, I understand that if we pass pro-life legislation, what it's going to tell somebody who does not believe that life inside the womb is actual life, what it's going to tell them is, yes, no, you don't have right over your body. And it's these, you know, the big bad Republicans are coming in telling you what to do with your personal health care choices. Well, I look at it as the very opposite. I go in a moral society that kills its own children. That's a nation without hope. That's what Mother Teresa said. You know, when, when I look at this, I go, uh, yes, uh, pro-choice legislation is the representation of someone's moral framework that is having a direct impact on the autonomous right of another individual. The same thing with pro-life legislation. So my point, Tim, is look, we both do this. The only difference is I'm honest about it. And I go, yes, you're right. The things that I advocate for in the public square do him in and frame in the unilateral permission of others 
to function in the way that they desire to operate in the world around us because laws are moral by nature. So a democracy gives us the opportunity to debate on whose morality is more moral without resulting to bloodshed. And that's well, why I love democracy. Unless you, unless you believe in January 6th, right? Um, uh, two quick things on this. Um, <laughs> which I do not, which I do I, not. I, I, I'm sorry, You're, to be clear, you do not, I know. I, that, wasn't, that wasn't a gotcha to you. It was just a general out into the ether. Um, two things, you know, number one, um, I know you know this. Like I was, I I couldn't have grown up any more conservative. I was homeschooled. I so like I understand like the MSNBC like talking point, but I'm telling you from someone who lived in that world alongside of you for 34 years. I can tell you for sure that I've heard dozens of sermons on insert culture war here. Never heard a sermon on how we really think about the, the a living wage, for example. Like I'm telling you, it's not just a talking point. There's a reason why the critique is real. Because and again, I would even ask you, like I'm not aware of what um, any of the Republican candidates, you know, take on on universal health care or affordable health care is. I don't know what it is for wages besides like work harder essentially. So while I'm sure there, I'm sure there are folks who have those those solutions, like they're definitely they're definitely drowned out by the culture war talking point, which we both know, dude, is a product of the moral majority. Like we know that we know how the culture wars came to be. We know that abortion was overwhelmingly supported even by the SBC for over a decade until they finally figured out that, you know, the culture war issue, abortion is a divisive topic, et cetera. I guess one of my questions, my, and I said final ones, but here we are like 25 minutes later. I just think that what I'm trying to like, I'm trying to understand is I'm just failing to recognize like, it's in particular with like, uh, well, I guess I'll just put it this way. Like, and maybe it's not the best comparison, but like, you know, the religious freedom and like my right to, to make legislation. I mean, this is like the same logic that was used for for maintaining segregation. It just was. Now, you and I see this very differently now, right? But like, dude, this is the logic. It's like, hey, the Bible's clear. We have to maintain civilization. Segregation is the best way to do that. These liberals and this government control is, is going against our religious conviction, etc. I'm trying to understand. Help me understand. In the context of queer marriage, help me understand, like, why or what is it for you that's like, no, Mark and Fred, my religious belief is convinced that you do not have a right to marriage. Therefore, in this society that is not governed by the Bible, but is governed by a constitution and all kinds of rules, you I'm going to fight like hell to make sure you never get that right because my religion. Like, how help me understand, A, the why, and B, how you think that even gives that those people a better view of what it means to be a Christian. Because I'll tell you what, a lot of queer people see that and they're like, count me the hell out. I want nothing to do with this Jesus you claim to serve at all. I want nothing to do with it. Give me your response. Yeah, I mean, I think in the context of the analogy with the segregation, I mean, the thing to remember, too, is that, you know, what led to the overturning of the slave trade in America was Christian abolitionists. And so if your argument is we can find Christians <laughs> over the last 300 years who have used the Bible to make bad arguments, then you know, I have no disagreement with you there. Yes, history is replete with uh, examples of people who have quoted scripture unfaithfully, including the devil in the 40-day temptation of Christ, who quotes scripture unfaithfully. And so, uh, yes, have people used the Bible over the years to advocate for all sorts of things that are antithetical to uh, the message of Christ? Absolutely, you and I would agree on that. 
Um, you know, with that being said, the work of William Wilberforce uh, in Europe and then the work of um, a lot of uh, the folks involved with the Underground Railroad and the abolitionist movement. I mean, that was driven by a deep conviction that uh, and even the hymns that came out of that era, the Christian worship that came out of that era, it was driven by a deep conviction from believers that uh, men are men are born equal and created equal under God. Now, with that being said, did you have other Christians using scripture unfaithfully? to advocate for things like slavery, segregation, Jim Crow laws? Uh, absolutely. Um, but even when you look at some of the theology of Abraham Lincoln from a historical perspective, I mean, it was clear that he was guided by some sort of consciousness of God or Christ that led him to this kind of moral decision-making moment where he said, listen, uh, this is, uh, this is uh, uh, Condoleezza Rice calls it the birth defect of the founding of America. This birth defect must be uh, uh, remedied. Uh, so in particular to your modern day example now, uh, as it pertains to uh, gay marriage, you know, just from a, a purely um, uh, kind of social perspective, uh, the reason why I support uh, traditional marriage and believe that the government should support traditional marriages because marriage benefits society. I think traditional marriage benefits societies in a way that non-traditional marriage does not. And uh, and and when you look at the kind of the the consensus or the concept of why marriage exists, even as a uh, as a framework uh, uh, at all, uh, it's uh, for the uh, you know uh, regeneration of, of of kind of the next generational line. It's because kids do best when they're raised in two parent households. You know th- things of that nature. I mean, there's there's a lot of data. Uh, on that. Uh, 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 But with that being said, as it pertains to, well, why are you as a Christian? Why would you be in support of traditional marriage laws? Now, part of this is a misnomer to a certain degree because I'm in Washington State. Washington State is the most progressive on all of these issues all the time. Uh, and so there's no hope in Washington State of traditional marriage laws or pro-life laws, you know, outside of some crazy legislative coup. Uh, but, you know, for me, uh, when I think about the importance of the family, I look at the family as the first governmental unit that God ever instituted. The first governmental unit was a mom and a dad in a garden. It's, it's the first governmental unit. And so for me, any type of public policy that does damage to the first governmental unit, which is the family unit, is governmental policy that I would oppose. And so, you know, for me, when you're like, well, why is you as a Christian, why do you support traditional marriage laws and Fred and Bill, you, you would say, hey, I want to support you guys getting married. Well, uh, it's because I believe in the first governmental institution, which is the family unit, which is the uniting of two opposites, male and female, for the express purpose of replenishing the earth and raising kids in a two-parent household. And because I think marriage is a reflection, Paul uses the analogy of marriage as a reflection of the way that God desires covenantal relationship with his people. And so to me, to do violence to marriage is to do violence okay, to scripture. Okay, okay. It's yeah, to do get- violence to God himself. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't want to interrupt you. I, but like, no, 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 no. Go. You do realize though that like advocates who support queer marriage, what they're not saying is we have to kill heterosexual marriage, right? Like, like no one's talking about right. trying to destroy heterosexual marriage. All they're saying is, hey, legally in the U.S., can queer couples get the same legal rights as heterosexual couples? And by the way, just for fun, I pulled up the divorce rates in Washington State. They're 2.9% compared to somewhere like Alabama, which is 3.6. So I'm not even sure if like, I mean, is there a correlation between like, if we legalize gay marriage, the family unit's destroyed? I think that's a total piece of like, there's no evidence behind that. All we're talking about, literally all we're talking, I don't mean to laugh, Russell, I'm not making fun of you, but like all we're talking about is a a nation saying 
hey, gay people exist and they have a right to be legally married to get the same tax benefits and visitation benefits and healthcare benefits. And then you're like, well, it's gonna destroy marriage. It's like, how? No one's talking about destroying marriage. You can still yeah. get married, Russell, as a guy who's no. straight. I, help me understand well, that. that. Yeah, that's not my claim, you know, and I, I didn't say that. It, it's not my claim that if gay people get married, that the world is. Well, uh, you going said you wanted to protect the institution of marriage. That's kind of like your framework for this, right? Yeah, it is because you know, for me, and and just to be clear, uh, what I am not against is um, uh, civil laws that would uh, guarantee uh, equal protection under the law, inheritance benefits, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. The reason why I am. Um, old school, conservative, whatever you want to call it, as it pertains to marriages, because, uh, again, back to the literary critique of deconstruction, the, the dialectical framework, changing things, things of that nature. For me, uh, when we fundamentally as a society redefine marriage, I think it has unintended consequences that maybe we are not even aware of in this moment. And so for me, uh, uh, all of a sudden saying, and, and again, how long this conversation going to go? I'm not sure, but it's it's the same reason why I oppose trans legislation, because I think when we fundamentally redefine what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman, that that has long ranging social consequences. And when we do it under the banner of empathy, like, well, come on, we're just kind of being kind to people who, you know, come on, what's the big deal? So if a man wants to go into the women's restroom, who cares? Why is that such a big deal? Come on, Rush, you're just being old school. I look at this and I go, as somebody who gave the first part of his life to being strictly involved in public policy, I, I will tell you that uh, oftentimes the decisions we make in finite moments, we are unaware of the impact that they have generations down the road. And to me, I have a concern when we redefine words like marriage, when we redefine words like man and woman, when we redefine words like minor, when we redefine words like child, when we redefine words like parental unit, when we do those things, I think ultimately it further erodes. It further erodes the concept of the family and the concept of marriage. And so, yeah, I mean, me, I guess we can wrap it up here. I, I understand that. And, you know, in my, I guess what I would just say in short is like, I think what erodes the families um, is the fact that we live in a uh, a, um, a corporate owned uh, work structure where mom and dad have to find a job to survive. And like, I think that's much more of a threat than like my neighbor down the street who's trans or who's gay. I think the problem, I mean, the, the, I hear this all the time too. It's like, we need pro family legislation, but that never involves like the systems that go into keeping people like, you know, dare I use the term, like enslaved to corporate workers for low wages fighting the corporate ladder. We, I, again, like it just seems like to me, I, if we're gonna talk about pro-family, which I'm all about, by the way, like I'm all about trying to keep families together. I think that's really healthy. Obviously we want kids to have parents in the home. I'm all about that. I can think of like several really good ways uh, to really help people like have the money they need so they don't have to work two or three jobs a week so they can see their kids more and be more involved. Or if they do have to work two jobs, they can find affordable family care. Like there are just much bigger issues to me that seem much more threatening to the family unit than, oh, my neighbor down the street who's married to his husband is somehow like the biggest threat. Like to me, it's like, okay, dude, like I guess, but how about you give people some fair freaking wages we can actually survive here instead of me and my wife having to work two or three jobs just to barely make ends meet to the point where if one one unexpected expense comes up, we're totally screwed. I mean, to me, that just seems like a bigger threat to the family than my trans neighbors. Yeah, well, and certainly, and this is, again, where you and I are going to have some agreement because, you know, we both kind of trend towards economic populism. 
which is uh, this idea that, you know, the kind of corporate welfare class of uh, big business that uh, in many ways, you know, takes advantage and, and kind of rips people off, that that also harms the ability for uh, families to live peacefully and and have uh, living wage jobs and be able to afford houses. And of course, that's not helped by out of control inflation and 8% interest rates under the current administration. Sure. But, you know, the, the reality is, is that, uh, you know, yes, uh, when we when we talk about the, the family and the importance of the family unit, is there things that also should be talked about just outside of whether Fred and Bill down the street want to get married? Absolutely, because this is an entire framework of things that need to be addressed, which is, by the way, uh, one of the things that I did appreciate, even though I would admit he's uh, a little crazy, uh, one of the things I did appreciate uh, about Kanye West's failed short-term presidential bid is that he talked about stuff that, like, nobody else, like, would mention. I mean, again, partly because he's just a little crazy, but he'd be talking about, like, the dangers of pornography. And I'm like, What? You know, he'd be sharing like his stories and personal anecdotes and like this did violence against my soul and changed the way that I viewed women and harmed my marriage. And I'm like, yo, I wish I guess I wish more people would be speaking about this. But before we go, I, I know you've asked me a lot of questions. I have a question for you. Oh, yeah. I, love I don't know if I away. I don't know if I've asked this in person. Oh, ooh, but simi- simi- similar to how we started for you personally. Yeah. Uh, where do you see yourself in this movement if you could hit the fast forward button 10 years and by that what i mean is this i don't mean you know pro-life legislation or what do you think about minimum wage living wage things like that yeah, yeah. but when i'm when, I, when when we're talking about the creeds when we're talking about affirming the deity of jesus is jesus lord is Jesus just a concept or was Jesus a, a real, not only historical person, but a person today who sits at the right hand of the father who lived a sinless life? There's only one way to God and it's through the son. He is the way, the truth and the life. You know, thinking about the claims of Christ, uh, even from the gospels, you know, not even talking about the other letters, but just the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the claims of who Christ is. Fast forward 10 years. Tim is still leading New Evangelicals. You're a New York Times bestselling author. Whoa. You're on the cover of cover of Men's Health, Six Pack. Oh my God, now listen, Russell. That's so nice. Now listen, all I'm going to say is when you come into your kingdom, you remember me. When you get your <laughs> private jet, you remember little old Russell from Snohomish. But where, like, where do, like, do you, because here's my concern. Like legit, like at the end of the day, like here's my concern. My concern is that People who are not anchored to something stronger than the current cultural moment that we are in hit fast forward 10 years. And I go, is Tim still a believer in Jesus is Lord? Is Tim still a believer in the supremacy of Christ? Is Tim still a believer in the ideas of the atoning death? that made a way where there seemed to be no way that now we enter into right relationship with the father through the torn flesh of his son. Uh, uh, like, cause for me, like my concern is without an anchor where this goes. And, and again, part of this is anecdotal part of this is anecdotal, but just the anecdotal evidence that I have of conversations with other people in this community is that generally where they end up is either pantheism, agnosticism, or atheism. 
Uh, and I'm not talking political stuff. Are you ever going to be a Trump supporter? I'm not talking about that. Because at the end of the day, to me, those are ancillary and secondary to the great question of like, like, where does a person spend eternity? And for me, I go like, do you, I don't know. Do you ever wrestle with that? Like, do you ever like, does that ever keep you up at night going like, Hey, like I'm on this journey. I'm asking the hard questions. I'm being honest. I'm authentic of where I'm at. I'm leading a community of people who have very similar experiences to me. But like, if I fast forward 10 years, could I even, do, do, do I see myself as still even having a rightful, historical, seemingly intellectually honest claim to being a Christ follower? Not Christ as a concept, not Christ as a framework, not Christ as fighting for living wage, but like, who Jesus says he is like, cause that's my concern. That's my concern with the people in the movement is not you guys disagree with me politically. Of course, I got people in my family who are closer to you politically than they are to me. Mm. Like I've been talking, I was talking to one of my family members the other day and I was like, I'm going to do this debate with him. And he was like, Oh, I've been watching that guy for two years. And I'm like, you weasel. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, to me, like the political stuff is interesting. Cause you and I, whether or not we agree, at least we're going to have a good faith dialogue. But to me, like, I'm more concerned about the, the questions of eternity. And you hit fast forward 10 years. Where do you stand with that? Well, two things. Number one, it, yeah, I, I enjoy talking politics. But also for me and for the people that I represent, you know, it's more serious, too. You know, I, we have a lot of queer folks in our community, a lot of folks who are in the BIPOC community. And, like, they're honestly and rightfully so terrified at, like, some of the legislation that has been talked about from some people, you know, in, in the political arena. So, you know, I think, and I, I know that you'll call this whatever, but I think we have to acknowledge that like, at least for me as a straight white man, like I don't have to worry a whole lot, but like other people who are not like me absolutely are worried. So this is definitely, I enjoy the conversation. You know, I like, I like to debate, but also I do it because like, I am ultimately also really concerned regarding the theology stuff. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, I'll put it like this. I mean, if I asked you, hey, Russell, in 10 years during the, the, the fourth insurrection, are you going to be marching? I don't think you see yourself doing that, you know? Um, I have no, I have no uh, interest in, like, trying to change, like, you know, physical resurrection, uh, virgin birth. Like, th those to me are, are, are beliefs I believe. Now, what I would say is, like, can I objectively prove that those things happened? No. And neither would Sean McDowell. I've interviewed him. I asked him that. I have belief that they happened. I have faith that they happened. But am I going to, like, be like, my whole life is trying to defend why the historical resurrection absolutely happened? Like, I, to me, that's kind of a fool's errand. We don't have any of the original manuscripts for 2,000 years removed. No. But does it really give me a hope that, you know, dead things can turn back to life, that there is hope, that there is a resurrection of sorts happening that we can participate in here and now that also impact like the, the end of all things for sure. But how that all works is like, frankly, I'm still exploring those rooms. I mean, the Bible project, this is Tim Mackey, very evangelical podcast kind of vibe. You know, he's the one who kind of got me into this thing of just like understanding how complicated the Bible really is and how foreign it is to a Western audience. I mean, even the book by Randy Richard, misreading scripture through Western eyes. He's a new Testament professor at, at, at West Palm beach. Again, pretty moderate, not, not liberal at all. Great book. Just like how much we can miss from our own worldview as we try and read the Bible. So I would of course affirm those things. I also realize that I want to do my best to understand the traditions I'm a part of, and I'm willing to explore those roads. But for me, a physical resurrection is like incredibly hopeful for me. The virgin birth is like mysterious and almost magical. I'm like, Oh, that's, you know, God in flesh, 
embodied into human form and then advocating for these things and doing these things and showing us how to live as his followers. That's very important to how I want to live my life, 100%. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like you are saying both now and if you could hit fast forward, which I know is theoretical, okay, but you would both say now and, you know, for at least the intended future, uh, you would affirm Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Jesus is king. And so I would, I, I would say that in a political sense, right, but right. in a I, I theological to, sense. I just want to be clear. You know, I would affirm that, but how I would describe that would might be different than some people, maybe yourself or whatever. But ultimately, I believe, and I, as far as like afterlife stuff, I'm kind of torn between like, is it annihilationism? Is it universal reconciliation? But ultimately, I think that through Christ, this Christ, you know, the person of Christ and how he's been interpreted throughout the different traditions, he is like the reconciler of all things. Like he's the reconciler of of the cosmos and he's the one that again god embodied uh is is showing um you know how the love of god actually manifests it manifests it manifests in the homeless jew under the occupation of roman empire right he didn't come as the empire he didn't come to take up arms and to overthrow the empire he came to subvert it through nonviolence and through working with the marginalized so to me that has a huge impact and yes in the next 10 years i don't see myself changing that belief um because that fuels all i've always done my entire life you know i tell people all the time I was radicalized by my faith tradition. I'm still radicalized. I'm still doing the work I set out to do 10 years ago. I just did my best to follow the path to understand, okay, if if the gospels are important and they're essential to understanding how Jesus functions and how he lived, and if the Christian tradition is part of, is where I'm steeped in it, I better know how wide and deep this thing goes and pick up on themes I can to try and push, as Scott McKnight would say, for the Christian ethic being presented in our day and in our way, meaning it's meeting the cultural moment of our of where we're at, right? We know more about science and the universe than we ever have. Our theology has got to be able to realize that, right? We have to be able to say, wow, we know so much more about the universe and we have different kinds of problems like social media. How do we manage that? So there aren't always these like black and white answers to everything, but certainly what you just said, and I would affirm, you know, the creeds and stuff certainly go into how I navigate and negotiate my faith here and now. Yeah. And I think, I think that's important to hear, and I think that's encouraging to hear. And what I don't mean to do is what I don't mean to do is dismiss any other issue as not important to my community or to your community, because you're right. You know, the, the implications of these laws, especially regarding the, the, the family unit and, and abortion and the hot topic cultural issues. And, and by the way, one of the reasons why I'm invested in the cultural issues is because I believe they are downstream. The culture wars are downstream from the spirit wars. And so the reason why for me I'm engaged in these is because I actually view these primarily as spiritual battles, not as political ones. But right. uh, uh, and I think you're right. I think I think you're right to say, hey, listen, we're not going to be dismissive of these things because they have real world implications. And regardless of what we decide going forward, there's going to be somebody who uh, feels as if uh, what they believe to be true in the last generation is infringed upon. Uh uh, but for me, I go, the, 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 the primary thing that I look for is going, hey, if Tim and I can get to the point where we both affirm to a certain degree the creeds and affirm the lordship and the sovereignty of who Jesus claimed to be, then I look at that and I go, that ultimately is the question of eternity. You know, I think when we stand before God, he's not going to say, show me your voting record. With that being said, I believe that, and you would too. Your relationship with God should impact the way that you vote. 
We just process it differently because we take different avenues to reach different conclusions. But if we have the same starting point, that Jesus is in fact who he claimed to be, then to me, I would go, hey, Tim, I think you are actually a bright spot anecdotally in this movement because my experience, uh, which is limited, but my experience with people is that they would be unwilling and uncomfortable to make those claims. And so for me to go, look, I'm having a conversation with Tim, who is probably more on the Bernie Sanders side of things. Uh, and I'm probably more on the Ron DeSantis side of things, but we have the same starting point, which is Jesus is Lord. Maybe you're annihilationalist. Maybe it's reconciliation at the end. I go, okay, fine. Uh, but I look at that and I go, if we can both affirm that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that is far and above the most profound question that will determine where humanity spends eternity. And ultimately, I go, hey, to be honest, like, I look at that and I go, that, that's huge. Like, that is huge to hear from you, not because I put you into some category of apostate, but, to, but because this is not the normal conversation anecdotally that I've had with people in your community. And so for me, I go, uh, this is actually the most important thing. The most important thing is who do you believe Jesus to be? This is the question he asks his disciples. Who do you say that I am? And for me, I just go, at the end of the day, that's what I'm giving my life for. Yeah. Well, listen, Russell, we talked a lot. It was great. I appreciate you being cordial. And I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I know that you're kind of in, you're talking to an audience that would strongly disagree with you. And it takes a lot of guts to do. So thanks for coming on. And I'm sure I'll talk to you again soon. So thanks for making time. Hey, appreciate you, boss. You Good to it, see you. You too. All right, friends. Well, I mean, there you go. There's an hour and 45 minute conversation. I mean, it is interesting because I think, oh, an hour's fine. Then I blink and it's an hour and 45. I've read all the comments. Thank you for all of them. Even folks who disagree with me, thank you for being here. If you like what we do, we are a nonprofit organization. Donations make this work possible. We don't have paywalls. Our podcast is paywall free. Our content's paywall free. Our Zoom groups are paywall free. You can donate via the link in our show notes or you can become a Super Chat fan. Uh, I, I didn't know that was a thing. Like, like this person here, where is it? Uh, Travis. Oh, that's really small. All of a sudden, holy moly! There we go. Uh, glad you're doing this. Thanks, Travis. All finances go right to the organization of TNE as we help hold space for folks marginalized by the evangelical church, advocate for accountability inside of evangelical spaces, and help people explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of fundamentalism. Have a good one, friends. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Bye. Bye.